For the past two weeks, we've had the privilege of meeting two very different kinds of, of missionaries. Uh, one was a man who, because of the nature of his work in a country where Christianity can be deadly and lead to imprisonment and death, uh, his name is, is one I can't even mention. But he told you about leaving a comfortable life when he was 50 years old in the United States and moving to a very difficult place. Details along the way of his sacrifice. He lived uh, over seven years without a bathroom and shower. It's a tough go. Agreed? And he don't seem too impressed. Okay, I was impressed. I love to be clean. And he's made friends there who, who would normally, that regime would normally consider him an enemy. And people are hearing about Jesus. Then last week, you met my good friend, Sal Saberna, who after 20 years at a very large church, you'd think he would be settling in to enjoy and to be comfortable and enjoy the fruits of his labor for two decades, but he walked away from all that. And He's currently without a salary because he's trying to strengthen and fundraise for an organization that goes all over the world, but particularly Africa and the Philippines, to help children who, humanly speaking, have no hope and no help if someone doesn't come for them and come to them in the name of Jesus. My intention this morning was to try to put a bow on that and read to you and explain to you a passage from the little letter of 3 John saying what response we should have as those who stay behind. I'll give it to you in a sentence from 3 John. After describing those kinds of people in the first century, John said we should help, we should support such people so that we will be fellow workers for the truth. In other words, they go out for love of Jesus with no other support. We should stand with them and financially send them and show hospitality and kindness to them so that they can go and stay where they are needed. There. There's last week's sermon. Two for one value this morning. How about that? Again, you seem unimpressed. Um, I'm getting used to that. It's okay. My feelings don't hurt quite that easily. You've toughened me up. This week, though, I, I can't do that. I've had so many questions, and I feel such a, a Christian and pastoral responsibility towards you to give you guidance about the questions you're asking in the middle of what is definitely cultural upheaval and cultural change at a very rapid pace in America. Just a few weeks ago, the Supreme Court of the United States extended the benefit and the legal protections of marriage to people of the same sex. And that created no shortage of anger and histrionics and reactions and protests and all sorts of questions all along the spectrum, from celebration to grief. And a lot of you have asked me, what is a biblical stance on this? What are we to do? So I'm going to attempt to do something difficult, in fact, something miraculous, and I'll need the help of Jesus to do it. I always do, but especially, I feel it especially keenly today. This isn't really a sermon. It's more of a Bible teaching from several different passages to try to tell you in clear, understandable language 
what Jesus said, what the Bible says. How should we respond? And the difficulty will be in the climate that we're in right now, if I say what the Bible says, even if I read certain portions of the Bible, some will characterize me as unloving and perhaps bigoted and hateful. I don't believe I have any of that in my heart, and I certainly don't want to portray it. On the other hand, the opposite challenge is, if I do less than read to you and explain to you in clear language what the Bible says, I'll be less than truthful. When John got to know Jesus and the Holy Spirit moved him to write his gospel, he described Jesus in this way, Jesus was full of grace and truth. As much as anything else, that to me speaks of the unique personality and character and deity of Jesus because it's hard to be fully gracious and fully truthful at the same time. Some people lead with the truth and forget all about love. Have you noticed? They scream the truth at you. No love. Others misunderstand love and grace, and they say less than what Jesus said. They say less than what God has said. And in that silence, they believe they are practicing love and grace, and they're not. The love is always truthful. It's never less than truthful. And genuine love is not only truthful, genuine love is also gracious. As Sal told us last week, Christian obedience without compassion is hypocrisy. If all we have are marching orders that we've misunderstood and subtracted the love from them, we become uncompassionate and hypocritical. So let's begin with what Jesus said. Our mission as a church, our mission as Christians, we weren't very clever. We didn't create our own corporate mission. We looked through the Bible and tried to pay attention to what Jesus told His believers, His followers, His disciples to do. So we say that together as a church, we're helping people become and we're helping each other become wholehearted followers of Jesus. In other words, that we're not selective with what we believe He said and what we choose to obey. We don't fill our intellect and leave our emotions untouched. We're not overcome by emotion and check our thinking at the door. If we're wholehearted, if the whole person is becoming more like Jesus and following Jesus and joining Him in His work, that's what a disciple does, we have to let Him have the first and the last word. And that's what I'll attempt to do today by asking, and just a series of questions that I'd like to answer from you for the Bible, from the Bible. The first is this, what did Jesus Himself say about marriage? In the meme-ridden pop culture bumper sticker, sloganeering that passes for conversation these days, one of the things that you'll hear is that Jesus never touched the topic, and that's not true. Look at what Jesus said in Mark chapter 10. Jesus, as is often the case, was asked a question to get him in trouble. He was asked a difficult question about divorce. And if you're being asked about divorce, you're being invited to speak about marriage. And Jesus, by answering the nature of marriage and the place of divorce, addresses the topic that is roiling our nation this, after, this morning. Jesus said, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. He was asked a question about divorce, and here was his answer. I'm going to read it to you again, and then we're going to do a little Bible study. Fair enough? In other words, I'm going to ask, and you're going to answer. All right? Fair warning. Don't be in oil painting this morning. (laughs) Jesus said, but from the beginning of creation, and he quotes, he's reading his Bible now. He's giving from memory an answer from the Hebrew Scriptures. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Jesus says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Question. When Jesus was asked about marriage, what did he appeal to? He spoke of the scriptures. In other words, he did not give an original thought. He went back to what God had said to humanity and what God had said to him as a man who lived among us, God himself become flesh? And where did Jesus root his answer about the nature of marriage? When did it start? Any particular culture? From the beginning. The moment of what? Of creation. Jesus didn't appeal to culture or contemporary understanding. Jesus went back to the very beginning and said, from the beginning of creation... Here's what happened. The Creator made humankind in two distinct genders, male and female. He appeals to the order and the design of creation, and then He applies that basic creative fact by God to marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Then he applies it. He gives a pointed answer to their question about divorce. What God has joined together, let not man separate. In other words, Jesus appeals to the order of creation. He speaks from the Scriptures, and he speaks specifically of marriage as an institution created and designed by God that began along with the very creation of the first man and the first woman. That's what informs what marriage is, not any contemporary and cultural understanding. Now, I've been reading Christian responses to to this issue that don't agree with my understanding and what has been the understanding of Christians since the church began. I've tried to understand how people who say they are following Jesus and taking Him seriously, what they do with these passages. One of the answers is that Jesus essentially did not anticipate our day. I'm, I'm just telling you that I, I, read, I read a Princeton education, uh, educated theologian that said in relating to other things about Jesus' worldview, specific the existence of spirits, He said if Jesus lived today, he wouldn't have said what he said then. I'm just, I'm not trying to be funny. I'm just telling you. One answer is simply this. We know more now than we did in Jesus' day. 
In many, many instances, that is certainly true. But let me humbly suggest that we don't know better than Jesus. Here's how I know. In John 1, where Jesus tells us that, God, that Jesus is God in the flesh, he says, in the beginning was the Word, giving Jesus that exalted divine title, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he says in John 1, 3, speaking of Jesus, the one who answered the question about divorce by referring to created, the creative act of God, and God bringing a man and a woman together, John said this about Jesus. Would you read that with me? All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Not only would Jesus anticipate hard time, he created the universe. He is not a created being himself. He is God who was humble and loving enough to come and live among us, his creation. But believe me, he has the full faculty, knowledge, and wisdom to anticipate our day. He knows our troubles. He understands the cultural pressures that are guiding our thinking. He anticipated this day and still spoke from the Scriptures and the order of creation defining marriage as He did. A second and very contentious question is this. Is the Bible clear on this topic? One of the Christian bloggers who is, is being, whose article is being passed around addresses some of the passages I'm going to read to you next. And I'm actually going to read them to you with a minimum of commentary and explanation. He says, these passages that I'm going to read to you next from the Apostle Paul instructing in personal letters to Christian churches how they were to live, how they were to live in their day, which was shot through with immorality, as you'll see, of every kind, not just sexual. He's going to tell believers in Rome and ancient Corinth, here's what it means for you to find your new identity in Christ and to walk out your faith in Jesus. In reading those things, you're going to see the passages are actually remarkably clear. They were clear because Paul intended for them to be. I'm not saying that the Bible is necessarily simple and there aren't deep, mysterious things in it. But I am saying this, when God put it in writing, he meant to be understood, just like you do. Do you write a deliberately misleading, mysterious letter, choosing words and language that you know full well your reader will not possibly understand? Neither is God. He's wise beyond description. He's not only wise, but he's loving and he's faithful. And the Bible tells us that the Scripture we're reading is literally breathed out by God. As God, the Holy Spirit, worked in the lives of ordinary people, they wrote down faithfully His thoughts, His words. Here's what Paul explained to the churches in Rome. Romans chapter 1 is one of the most sobering passages in all the Bible. It speaks of mankind generally and historically as deliberately ignoring God. Paul says the truth is evident to us, but we suppress it. In other words, it's not that it's not available. We deliberately in our spirit ignore it, and we turn our back on what God has said. And then in this sobering paragraph, Paul explains one of the consequences that comes when mankind does that. Romans 1 verse 24. Therefore, 
speaking of mankind in general. Paul says, therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Here's why he did that. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And Paul adds, amen. In other words, so be it. That's right. Right on. Now, Paul says that at the nature, at the heart of sin is this reality. People's hearts, apart from Jesus, are inclined to worship the creation rather than the creator. Let me ask you, and I'm, I'm being serious, this isn't rhetorical. Do we do that? I don't mean we out there, that's not we. I mean we in here. Are our hearts drawn to things in the created world? What sorts of things? What sorts of things do we tend to worship or give our allegiance or give our loyalty to rather than God? Money. We could, we could take the rest of the morning talking about the various things in creation that our hearts are drawn to. Paul says that is the nature of sin. And when people persistently in their disobedience suppressed the truth, ignored God, God gave them up. In other words, part of his judgment is giving a rebellious, stubborn mankind that will pay no attention to him, giving them the consequences of their own choices. It's a very pale analogy, and I, I don't want to, you to make any more of it than it is, because Romans 1 is far more serious. It's eternally serious. But in the earthly realm, have you as a parent ever kind of turned your kids over to the consequences of their own stupid choices? I have many times. Hopefully, I've tried never to their harm, but certainly to their hurt. Their grades have gone down. They've lost possessions. They've lost privileges. All kinds of painful things have come into their lives because, speaking humanly as an imperfect, sinful father, sometimes I tire of them persistently going the wrong way, and I turn them loose to do what they please. Paul says that is what God is doing in mankind. Verse 26, he's going to get into specifics. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. The men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Why did this happen? Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Now he's going to pull back, still speaking of mankind in general, he's going to say it's not entirely sexual. That's one of the evidences that we see of God's turning people up over to the consequences of their own choices, but it's much more comprehensive than that. Verse 29. And as I read this, Here's a serious exercise that you can do that will put you in just the place that God wants you to be. See if you can find yourself in this list. Don't cherry pick it for somebody else's troubles. See if you can find yourself. Verse 29. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. 
They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Did you manage to find yourself? I did. Paul's very explicit in the middle paragraph about one of the manifestations of sin in the world is men exchanging their affection for women for other men and women doing the same. But he keeps writing. And one of the Christian bloggers I've been reading calls this one of the clobber verses. And he essentially says, if you're using this, you're taking it out of context, you're not saying what it plainly means. I don't see that Paul is recommending or saying that anything that I've read has any virtue whatsoever. Every bit of it, from immorality and murder to disobedience to parents, to those homosexual impulses that have roiled the nation and divided even Christians and churches, it's all evidence of man turning away from God. Every bit of it. So it's not so much that it's a clobber verse, it's simply this, it's actually a clear verse. Why did he say it was a clobber verse? Because, let's be honest, some people will fixate on the middle paragraph and stand in condemning, loud, angry, gleeful judgment against the things on the list that have no attraction to your heart and emotionally and verbally clobber someone else rather than seeing that everyone fits on this list somewhere. For all sinners... I've tried very hard to keep my personal story and my personal experiences and things going on in my own experience because those are not the point. But believe you me, I'm in this list. What I don't have the authority to do as a disciple of Jesus who takes God's word seriously is to edit the list and to say that some of these things have been misunderstood and we now know better. Why then were people so troubled when this decision came down? Because verse 32 explains what has been happening in the Supreme Court was a big point, but as Sal said, it's been the law of the land in 36 states before the Supreme Court ever weighed in. Why then did so many people feel shaken and take that as a cultural touchstone? I think verse 32 tells me why. Here's where we are today. Still speaking of mankind, it says, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. Watch this. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That's the difference. My heart is inclined to its own kind of sexual immorality. My heart is inclined to its own kind of greed. You can ask my parents. I was certainly disobedient to them to the point of cursing them when I was a teenager. What does the Bible say about that? The Bible says for the wages of sin is death. That separated me from God and the life in eternal he intended for me. It kills everything about me, including my relationships, primarily beginning with my relationship with him. What makes this time in our culture explicitly different is that things are being redefined so that this specific thing that God speaks against is actually being celebrated and approved rather than mourned. That's the difference. Now, is there any good news in all of this? 
Well, yeah. We've been reading from the last half of Romans chapter 1. I didn't read you a famous headline. I didn't read you a promise that Paul made before he dug into these steps. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That well-known verse is a bright light, is a word of hope before Paul goes on to describe the trouble that the world and every individual in it is in. This is the good news. And Paul says in a culture that opposed him and defined its own morality and ignored his God and called him a fool for believing in Jesus, here's Paul's response. I'm not ashamed of this good news. I'm not ashamed of it. Why? Because it is the power of God for salvation to, here's the grace and the breadth and depth of the love of God. It is the power of God for salvation to how many people? Everyone, no matter what kind of mess you've made. Every single person on this list and the others and every single thing that your conscience speaks against that's not even mentioned in this passage I've read, salvation is available to you, to everyone, regardless of their religious past, their moral mess, or their ethnic identity, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. All can be saved. Paul said essentially the same thing to a different church, the church of Corinth, in a city that was famous for its immorality. So famous, in fact, that to Corinthianize was a verb in the ancient world. If you were Corinthianizing, you were completely off the rails. You were making a debauched mess of your life. And they were such a troublesome church. The pat were dropping into passages because this isn't a sermon proper where I take a single passage of Scripture and explain it to you. I'm trying to give you topical teaching on a specific issue. But when we drop into the Paul's letter to the Corinthians, what this lovely church is doing is suing each other. You ever been in a church where the people sued each other? Yeah, me too, right here. It was great. Um, It happens every church I've ever known. Some of the disciples, in clear disobedience to what the Bible says, will go to the court and speak to a judge who probably doesn't know God at all and basically ruin their testimony and give Jesus a black eye by yelling and screaming at each other through lawyers in court. That's what was happening in Corinth. There was somebody else who was apparently sleeping with his mother-in-law. And Paul said, you're doing things that even the pagans are embarrassed about. Stop it. In the middle of all that, he's going to tell them something that is vitally and beautifully important. He's just told them in the passage we're dropping into not to sue each other. He says, suffer the loss. I'm paraphrasing, but choose a fool in the church rather than go embarrass Jesus and ruin your testimony in front of a pagan church or in front of a pagan judge or just suffer the loss of the money or whatever it is that you're fighting for. Then as Paul is prone to do, he's going to climb up from the earthly example, this little trouble that these two people are having, he's going to climb up to a higher perspective and tell them why it matters. And if you're serious that this is God's word to us and you want to hear God's voice in it, take what Paul says very seriously. He said, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? In other words, the way you're behaving 
is indicative of people who don't know God at all, who are still in their unrighteousness, who have not been forgiven. Look, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Man, that's a serious verse. Because I can find myself in it. And you'll notice that Paul mentions men who practice homosexuality. The Greek there is a little difficult. Different Bible translations have handled it different ways. But in case you're reading stuff that says that it doesn't mean what it appears to mean, here's what the Greek underneath literally means. Active and passive partners in a homosexual relationship. Which this translation has coalesced into one single phrase, men who practice homosexuality. Alongside... People who struggle with other sins and practice other sins. Sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. None of those people, none of those people whose lives are characterized by that kind of disobedience to God, none of them will see his kingdom. Serious. It's not a cultural hot button. It's not a topic of the day. Paul puts it on the par of something that a life in all of these things along the whole list that speaks of a life who knows God or does not know God. Where's the good news? The very next verse. Would you read verse 11 with me? Paul wrote, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That first sentence is huge. Such were some of you. It doesn't define you now. God did something different. Jesus came into your life and you were washed, sanctified, and justified. Three different word pictures to show the difference that Jesus makes. Washed obviously means that you're cleansed. Sanctified literally means that you've been set aside for him. Justified means that God has declared you righteous in his court, not because of your merits, not because of your obedience and your goodness, but because of the obedience, the merits, and the goodness of Jesus. All of that happened, Paul says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That's the good news. What is not good news is editing the list to make sense of my own experience. Editing the list to make myself, my family, my friends more comfortable. I'm not allowed to do that. God is speaking. Now, here's the big question. How do we respond to all this? Well, much has changed, but really, nothing that we've been told to do has changed at all. Jesus hasn't changed his mind of what he expects and what he has told his disciples to do. What he told his disciples to do fits under two big categories. He said, keep the great commandment and keep the great commission. What's the great commandment? Let me read it to you because it needs to be heard in our time. Paul, the same Paul that wrote this sobering first chapter, also wrote this in the 13th. Paul said to these Christians in Rome... Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law for the commandments. 
You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Would you read verse 10 with me, please? Paul wrote, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. What, did, what is the great commandment? To love your neighbor. Sal helped us understand who our neighbor was. Our neighbor is anyone within our reach of influence that we can help. Not someone who acts like us, believes like us, thinks like us, is just like us, not someone we like. He took us to the radical teaching of Jesus, showing that the good Samaritan behaved like the one who loved his neighbor, even though the Jew dying in the ditch was his sworn enemy. There was a tradition, in fact, among the Samaritans that if a Samaritan, this isn't in the Bible, but... History has told us, according to one of my Hebrew professors, if a Samaritan saved a Jew's life, he forfeited his own. In other words, if you're a Samaritan and they catch you saving a Jewish life, they'll kill you. Well, if that's true, that puts the parable of Jesus in a whole other light. This guy just isn't being decent and loving. He's risking his life to save this man. And Paul and Jesus and all of Scripture is going to tell Christians, you are greatly loved and greatly forgiven. Now go love your neighbor as yourself. The temptation in our day for those of us who would try to reach our neighbor is to tell them less than what God has said. Love is always truthful. It is not angry, it is not vindictive, and it is not self-righteous, but it is always truthful. In these difficult conversations, inside your circle of friends and inside your family, if you grow quiet or refuse to say or redefine what God has said, that may be very gracious, but it won't be loving. If you're not truthful, you're not being loving. Here's how, G here's how Paul said it in Romans 12, verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. And something hit me this week. Both Paul and Jesus are going to tell Jesus' followers to be kind and loving and be a blessing and bless those who are persecuting them. And I thought to myself, I don't think I've ever heard a sermon explaining in practical terms how I am to love and bless people who hate me. Some of you have been in church for a long time. You ever heard a sermon like that? Hear, ever hear a sermon on three great ways to love your enemies? It's funny, isn't it? I've heard countless sermons of three ways to make your life even better. You're a Christian. Your life is awesome. Here's how to make it awesome. Or do these five things and your life will get even better. Where's all the teaching on doing what Jesus told us to do to bless those who curse us? To take evil and hatred directed toward us and turn it and respond instead with love. I'm not hearing it, and God helping me, I'll change that, at least in my own teaching. Jesus again answered a question that was intended to give him in trouble. Matthew 22, teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. How little attention we've paid to Jesus who said, love everyone regardless of what they think about you and regardless of how they treat you. 
I think that's why this budding blogger and theologian wrote that these are clobber verses. Not because they're not clear, but because he knows that in some quarters, some people who call themselves Christians have used them specifically to behave with hatred to those who are not like them. Here's what Jesus said. And I know I'm reading to you a lot of Scripture. If I've lost you, refocus right now. This is the world-famous Sermon on the Mount. This is what, where Jesus is describing what the life of God is like. This is life eternal. This is the Jesus life fleshed out. Jesus wrote this, Matthew 5, 11, and 12. Would you read it with me, in fact? Jesus told us, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's go back to verse 11. Jesus said that you were blessed, literally you were happy when other people were reviling you and persecuting you and utter all kinds of evil against you. Watch this, falsely, on my account. Some Christians behave like jerks and then when people push back, they claim persecution. Ever known anybody like that? just an absolutely reprehensible person in social settings. You're just mean and angry. And when somebody pushes back ever so gently, you say, ah, they hate me. This is me enduring my Christianity. No, you're only getting pushed back on because you're a jerk. <laughs> Jesus is wise and truthful. He's choosing His words carefully. You're blessed when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. Watch it. Falsely. On my account, not because you went off on a solo mission and did your own thing and suffered for it. If you're paying attention to me and obeying me and they're speaking evil and falsely against you because you're following me, Jesus says, in that case, you're blessed. You have great reward waiting for you. Where? Next verse. In heaven. Some people have said some fairly animated Christian writers since this decision was handed down and years earlier have lamented that this is the end of liberty in America, this is the end of protection for religious freedom. I don't know about that. Perhaps it is. What I do know is this. Religious freedom is nowhere promised to disciples of Jesus in the Bible. It doesn't exist. Almost every Christian disciple since Jesus went back to heaven has suffered as a minority with people around him, around them, who would make them pay a great cultural, economic, and sometimes to the cost of their own life for following him. I have no idea how this is going to turn. I have no idea what the cultural forces. I'm a pastor, not a cultural critic. I'm certainly not a constitutional scholar. I have no particular insight on what comes next. I will say this, if this rare in the history of Christianity, if the rare freedom, blessing, protection, and privilege that the Christian church along with all other churches in America enjoys simply because we take Jesus seriously and we obey Him and take Him at His word, all that's going to mean is that we're going to join the great host of disciples for whom life has always been like that.
And we need to be careful not to lament the end of earthly privilege because Jesus said that's not what it's about anyway. What we're about is building up and waiting and enjoying later reward in where? Heaven. So chill. (laughs) Take it easy. Understand that Jesus loves you and spoke the truth to you. What else did Jesus tell us to do? He not only said to keep the great commandment, he said, keep the great commission. What's the great commission? This simple mandate in Matthew, to make disciples of all nations. Matthew 28 tells us, now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. So it has ever been. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. You understand that? I'm in charge. You're a tiny little minority. There are just a few of you in your city who believe in me, but I have all authority and power. Here's what you're to do. Because of my authority and my power, you are to go and make disciples. Those disciples are to be baptized, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, watch this, how many things? All. The gospel, the words of Jesus are not ours to edit, they're ours to proclaim. We don't get to choose the parts that are easy to obey. We get to hear him and say, God, give me grace and love and courage to do exactly what you said. Here's his great assurance to you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Did Jesus anticipate our day? Absolutely. Does he love us still? Absolutely. So listen, in your day, in your time, with what little influence you have, with whatever blessings and privilege you enjoy or whatever blessings and privilege you lack, be loving. Let them know you by your love first. In your love, make sure that your love also translates into you being courageous. Because true love, wholehearted love, complete love is always courageous. It never stops from telling everything that is true. And remember, in all of this, Jesus is with you always. Jesus is always with us. Let's pray. We're told in Scripture to pray for authorities, to pray for one another, to pray for those who are far from us. Let me give you a second to do just that if you know how to pray. Think about it in three expanding circles. Yourself, as you try to be obedient to Jesus. Your family and friends who maybe feel this issue deeply to whom this is important. And then moving out from there to the wider community all the way to our country and authorities that God has placed over us. Lord, thank you for speaking clearly to us. There are so many things that you said that fill us with joy and hope and others that we want to check twice and make sure that you said that. Others that seem seem like hard words, hard to obey, but you're loving and truthful and good. And you speak for the good and the blessing of all who will listen to you. 
So help us, Lord, to move forward in loving courage and obedience to you. Help us not to count the cost to ourselves, but to count fully the cost of what it means to follow you. Lord, I know this issue is deeply personal to many. Would you give them your wisdom, your guidance, your grace, your truth to know how they are to follow you in the next conversations they have? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us on this edition of Cross Points. If you have any questions about what you just heard, please call our church office at 714-848-5511. If you are nearby next Sunday, we have services at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Visitors are always welcome at Crosspoint, and we hope you'll choose to worship with us when you're near the Huntington Beach community.